And welcome back to day one here at Global Supply Chain Week at Freight Waves. We are doing Ocean Waves today. It's all about global maritime shipping. And we have one of uh, the, the most sought after experts, I, I think, here uh, for that. And that's Lawrence Jensen. He's a partner and CEO of Vespucci Consulting. So, Lawrence, always great to have you. Uh, on a show, Freight Waves TV, conferences, uh, anywhere we can uh, have a chat with you. Well, thanks for inviting me back. You bet. Um, so we, we talked um, at the Ocean Waves event back in November, December. We're talking about, uh, is there going to be product on the shelves? And I think we found that for the most part, and you're right, you know, there are kitchen countertops. Maybe that not that one you really wanted, but there are kitchen countertops. There's inventory. How did the um, Q4 Christmas holiday season shake out for the, the industry? Well, you can say overall it shaked out pretty well, given that there were headlines at the time almost uh, promising that Christmas would be canceled. I think most people had a pretty decent Christmas uh, nonetheless. If we look at it slightly differently from an operational perspective, uh, all the people that worked with the importers to get those products in, they had a busy time and a very challenging time. Um, I can't remember whether we discussed it last time. Uh, there was some that were holding hope out that towards November, December, some of the bottlenecks would be alleviated. We would see the seasonal slowdown after Golden Week. I think I was more leaning towards I didn't quite buy that one. And unfortunately, that's also what panned out. There was a slight alleviation after Golden Week, and then it had just been progressively worse not just in the U.S., but in Europe as well. Port congestion have only been going in one direction over the last three months. That is steadily upwards. Well, let's talk about Europe real quick. I mean, we all know, uh, especially anyone who's in the U.S., it's mainstream media. It's been that way for months. It's the congestion, 100 ships in, in Anchor, uh, not only in San Pedro Bay now, but even further out, uh, not to, to hit that congestion metric um, per, per se in Long Beach and in LA. Uh, how are how are the ports and the congestion? Can you give us a little bit of description in, in Europe? The challenge there is there's more cargo coming in than you have inland capacity to move out. Or you can say at best, they more or less balance, but that prevents you from solving the fundamental problem that you have on the congestion part. European demand seemed to have been getting slightly stronger over the last few months. Now, keep in mind, U.S. up until recently was the only place in the world with a genuine demand boom. Europe was somewhat lackluster. Now, Europe is not as lackluster anymore. And that, of course, adds further pressure. Uh, you're, you don't see the same massive lines of vessels that you see outside Los Angeles, Long Beach. But I think that is more a reflection of the fact that LALB is one of the only places in the world where you have that much cargo going into essentially one port complex. Whereas in Europe and even on the U.S. East Coast, of course, that's spread out over more different ports. So you don't get the same kind of uh, great headlines of a lot of ships in one port. But the fundamental effect, unfortunately, is the same. It is. It, it is. And we saw that through Q4 uh, peak season. Once we come out of this, I, I read an article uh, I, I think the logistics manager index showed a rise in, in inventories in December and January. And, and that's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to sell off your inventory at, at Christmas and during the holidays and, and start rebuilding it. 
uh, kind of, you know, before and after the Lunar New Year uh, in, in China. But we saw a rise in, in inventories. What are some of the, the, the causes of that? I'm, I'm not surprised that you will see an earlier rise than usual in inventories. I mean, the, the importers have learned from the debacles of the past 18 months. So a lot were taking their precautions rather than move cargo in January that you would normally do. They figured in, well, since there's a likelihood everything is going to be a month delayed anyway, let's start moving the product a month earlier as well. So you are likely going to see one effect where it is simply the same product you would normally see, but it has been moved earlier. Then there is a wild card because it is to some degree opaque how much of all the inventory stuck on these hundreds of vessels are included in these statistics or not. And that's fairly opaque. That is opaque. And, and that, that has a lot to do with the final outcome of everything is is this. Um, are we seeing kind of a rush pre-Lunar New Year right now? Or uh, has that kind of the, the traditional patterns that, that we see, has that just been disrupted over the last couple of years and, and no, still continuing right no, now? No, you, 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 you still see the, the traditional rush. Uh, part of it, of course, course, to some degree was mitigated by cargo being loaded weeks earlier than what you would normally see. Part of it is also down to, again, you have this challenge. You don't have all the capacity you necessarily want because the vessels were tied up. So it, it's virtually impossible to do a decent uh, like for like. What you're going to see in the coming weeks is you don't have as much blank capacity as you normally would following Chinese New Year. Keep in mind, normally you see at least 30 35% of capacity blanked in the weeks immediately after Chinese New Year. That's not what we see this time. The blank sailings that we see now is still down to the vessels are physically not there. And that should at least give some alleviation. But this is where we need to think the timing perspective in. Because even if, and I stress if, uh, you have a decline in demand over the coming weeks out of China due to Chinese New Year, that still means that that alleviation won't hit the U.S. West Coast until three weeks down the line. And the East Coast and Europe, four or five weeks down the line. So you're going to see continued incoming pressure into the port infrastructure all through February, even if you're beginning to see a downturn in demand now. That's just the the sheer time lag of the whole thing. So in best case, you're beginning, you, you can begin to hope for a gradual alleviation of the pressure and the congestion in the ports when we get into March. And once we get into March and, and into uh, you know the, the spring and summer months, I mean, are we... Is 2020, do, do you believe that 2022 is going to look much like 2021, kind of part two or a, a redo? Or uh, there, there, mean, there, are two, there are two answers to this, because mm-hmm. um, at, at least for now, I'm separating between, let's call it a base case, and then two major curveballs. So let's deal with the base case first. In the base case, with no major curveballs, then we are at the peak of the problems now and the next month or so. And then we are beginning to see a gradual resolution. And in best case, we can have the world back to something resembling normality by the end of 2022. Now, mind you, it is going to be a very bumpy ride. It's not going to be a steady, gradual improvement. It's going to be fits and starts. But eventually, we will get there. That is the baseline. I want to and hear the curveballs. And then I mentioned yeah, curveballs. Well, curve exactly. And, and whilst, of course, we can always conjure up loads of curveballs, um, <laughs> I think there are three that are worth discussing in this context. The first one is the uh, 
negotiations between the ILWU, the Port Workers Union, and the U.S. West Coast and the uh, terminals. My take on that one is that is not necessarily going to be a curveball. I mean, if if I was to go to Vegas, I would bet on this actually panning out with an agreement eventually. There will be a lot of screaming and shouting and, of course, negotiation posturing. Obviously, there will be. But eventually, I think there's going to be an agreement found. There will be huge pressure on the port workers union not to make a horrible situation even worse. There will be a huge pressure on... Now, we say the terminals, but eventually it's the carriers that, that, that's on the spot here, and they're going to pay more. And given how much profit they're making now, I mean, they're on a pressure to find you have to cave in. The key bone of contention is more likely to be on the topic of automation, where the union is not a great believer in automation, at least not if it costs jobs. So, so that's going to be the key. And eventually... I think they're going to find an agreement. So that's curveball number one. I actually don't think that will materialize. Curveball. I, I think the, the the public relations nightmare for for both sides uh, on on curveball number one with the unions is they're, they're going to have to reach a, some yeah. kind of deal. Exactly. But obviously, both parties have their own constituents to talk to, so they can't make an agreement too quickly, and it has to look like negotiations are completely falling apart for a, a few times before we get to that point. Then we have curveball number two. That is the combination of China and COVID. And it has been a high risk for the last month, will continue to be so. China is very clearly still pursuing their zero tolerance policy. And we saw the effects of that last year when Yanchan shut down for several weeks. We had one of the major terminals in Ningbo shut down for several weeks because of less than a handful of people testing positive. China is still pursuing that same policy. At the same time, we now have a spread of a much more contagious variant. So pure mathematics tells us that there is a very high risk that we will see more supply chain disruptions from China simply because of this. We can be lucky, and it doesn't materialize. We've been lucky the last month. Uh, You have had major shutdowns in China, but they have predominantly been in residential areas of cities like Xi'an and Tianjin. You had smaller areas hit in Ningbo that had a marginal impact on some container depots and warehouses, but nothing to materially disrupt the flow. Do you think uh, a part of the the strictness of this policy and uh, possibility of continuation or the Olympics uh, coming Um, up this year and making sure that nothing disrupts that? Absolutely nothing will be allowed to disrupt the the Olympics. Uh, The the question here is, when will China change their zero tolerance policy? Because eventually, at some point in the future, they're going to have to rejoin the world. And when they do that, they're going to see the same waves as the rest of us are experiencing right now with a much more contagious but less dangerous variant. It's a political question, and I'm not one to guess on Chinese policy. I'm just looking at what is the policy that they're definitely enforcing now and the mathematics of it. And that means there will remain for the coming months a very high risk that we will see major disruptions to the supply chain on account of that. That would be one of the curveballs. Worst case, of course, would be, say, the shutdown of Shanghai for two or three weeks. The third curveball is one that have uh, risen dramatically in recent weeks. And it emanates from the uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which in reality is a conflict between Russia and the NATO countries. And to understand why I see this as a potentially very devastating curveball, we have to go back a few years. Let's go back to 2017. This was where Musk was hit by a devastating cyber attack. 
Keep in mind, they're the world's largest carrier. They were basically completely off the grid for roughly a week, and it took them a few weeks to get fully back up and running. Then we also have to take into account nobody actually attacked Musk. Nobody targeted them. Musk was purely collateral damage. What happened was there was a major cyber attack against Ukraine. Uh, Western intelligence services pinned the blame for that on Russian actors. And it hit something like 7,000 companies in Ukraine indiscriminately. Musk was just unlucky to be one of those 7,000. Fast forward to the conflict uh, as it is right now. If this escalates further, then there is a likelihood we might see Russia physically in the Ukraine. If that happens, we're going to see sanctions from the NATO countries. We don't know which sanctions yet. And Russia will very likely then respond in kind, likely with cyber attacks. And, and again, this is not something I conjure out of thin air. Over the last two weeks, you have seen warnings of precisely this come from the cyber intelligence services in the UK, in the US, in Canada, actually in Denmark as well. You had the US, sorry, the UK cyber authorities come out last week and say they are already seeing actions being taken that are similar to those that were taken prior to the uh, attack that happened in 2017. So there is a very real risk that critical infrastructure might be targeted. And obviously, shipping lines, ports, and terminals are part of that grouping called critical infrastructure. And this is where the current situation is markedly different than 2017. In 2017, we could essentially lose the largest carrier in the world for a week. And it didn't cause any major problems in the supply chain. It really didn't. Sure, if you had your cargo on board one of those ships, say, yeah, it got delayed uh, maybe a week, maybe two, and that was annoying. But from a global perspective, it was a non-event in terms of disturbing the supply chain. There was plenty of buffer capacity of ships, terminals, everything. Right now, we have zero, like in literally zero buffer capacity. We have insufficient ships because they're caught in queues. We have ports and terminals that are horribly congested. We can't even deal with that. If, and again, I stress if, let's say all ports and terminals have done their jobs very well and boosted their cyber defenses over the last five years, that does not render them impermeable. Uh, with a dedicated attack, you can still get in if you really want to. So what will then happen, and again, if they have done their jobs well, they have a good backup plan which means they could potentially be fully up and running again within, say, two, three, or four days. But think about it in the current environment. Taking just one major port out of action for two, three, or four days on top of what we're already dealing with, that will have major global ramifications on the supply chain. So that's curveball number three. The China one is clearly the most likely one to impact us. The Russian one is less likely, but equally devastating. I, I agree with that. Uh, we all think of Ukraine, uh, Russia. We think of traditional military. We think of oil going up and, and risk premiums being attached on everything. But it, it could lead to, a, to the biggest wave of cyber attacks, really, that, that, that we've seen. And, and, and if you start to think it through, the, the things we normally are concerned about, oil prices going up, for example, if, uh, if we maintain focus strictly on the container shipping supply chain and not on the consumers and the impact over there, but strictly on the supply chain, we're in the unusual situation that nobody cares about the oil price. We have record high prices on low sulfur fuel. Nobody cares. It's a non-issue because freight rates are so outrageously high 
that in the old days, this would have led to a bunker surcharge increase of, say, a couple of hundred dollars, and everybody would be up in arms about the devastation. $200 more or less on the freight rate right now means absolutely nothing. So increasing oil prices in themselves won't necessarily move the needle. Then it would be an indirect effect if that leads to skyrocketing energy prices, undermining consumer spending. And that would then have a negative impact on demand, which counterintuitively would then help us solve the congestion. You preface number three with, you know, the, the UK and Russia conflict being one of more Russia versus NATO instead of solely Ukraine, which kind of leads into the cyber attacks and, and lashing out or attacking, you know, the entire NATO uh, complex. And, and here at Freightwaves, we published uh, quite a bit. Uh, of stories, and unfortunately, there's a lot of ransomware, a lot of cyber attacks against transportation companies. You know, Maersk is one example. Uh, Ford Air is another one. Uh, Truckstop.com. Uh, the list actually, Martin Transport. The list really goes on and on right now. Everyone is going through this. Yeah, I mean, you, you've seen a lot. I mean, if you just look at 2021, you had Transnet, the operator of the largest container terminals in South Africa, was successfully impacted. Yeah. So, I mean, you see that, and then we can talk about technology spending and security in the in the supply chain, especially with carriers and uh, 3PLs and forwarders, and it's probably not the greatest. You know, it's certainly the, not the most secure industry. We have very little wiggle room, very little buffer uh, for the supply chain right now. So, while number three, I agree, is less likely, it could be more devastating than the first two, it probably would be um, on a worst-case scenario. No, and you can say that the cyber threat is not new. I mean, it, I was about to say it has been on the risk register for years. I would rather change that and say it should have been on most companies' risk register. My experience over the last 10 years in that field is there's a confluence of things here. First of all, it would appear most companies don't genuinely address that threat until they have been adversely impacted. Uh, that, that's just the nature of it, apparently. The other issue is the nature of the supply chain is you are dependent on exchanging information with a large number of stakeholders, which inherently means it is more difficult to, let's call it, protect your outer perimeter, no matter what you do. It, it is. You know, the, the linkage of the supply chain, uh, you're open to uh, the, the weakest link, I, I suppose, in, in that because you're importing a lot of information, data, and working with a, a lot of partners. Um, it, it is it, it is dangerous when it comes to uh, to cyber attacks and, and ransomware in this space right now, and um, it, it certainly is. Uh, before we go, um, you know, you have three curveballs. Uh, I, I'd like to ask you what data set that you're really looking at right now to give you the the best indication of how 2022 is moving along and if there will be any changes in in the market? Uh, I wouldn't say it's a data set. It's a number of mm -hmm. different parameters uh, in combination. Uh, one of them is looking at how are the spot rates moving, but not just those in themselves, how are they moving relative to what's going on in the contract rates? Because where the spot rates gives us an idea of the market right now, the contract rates gives us an idea of what's the sentiment on both carrier and shipper side. And right now, there's a clear willingness on the part of the major BCOs to enter into longer-term contracts at much higher freight rate levels. So they clearly expect this to continue for a long time to come. 
Then I follow a number of the different parameters on the congestion. One of them, of course, is the is the easy one to watch what's happening in Los Angeles, Long Beach. Uh, one of the ones I actually like to follow is the bi-weekly customer advisory sent out by Hyundai Merchant Marine, because they provide a very nice overview of some 30, 40 ports around the world in terms of congestion levels on both the inland and on the terminal side. Follow the sea intelligence numbers on both blank sailings, capacity developments, also on reliability, and then I follow the demand numbers, uh, usually just the overall ones from container trace statistics, because what I find relevant here is not necessarily whether global demand grows two, three, or 4%. That's relatively immaterial. It's more the disparity where you see huge regional changes between individual regions where you have still a boom into North America. You're seeing a strengthening into Europe. And you have a virtual collapse in exports out of North America and Europe, as an example. These are all, to me, some of the things that indicate where uh, where is the market going to go. And it also already now allows us some thoughts on what are the next problems we're going to face. Uh, there is an obvious predictable problem that we will face likely a year or so down the line. Because keep in mind, over the last two years, one of the many issues has been shortage of equipment. So the container factories in China have been working full tilt to build millions of new containers, obviously. But it's not really because we have a shortage of containers. It's because of the time they're tied up. One of the good indicators there is a Flexport's ocean timeliness indicator, where they measure transportation time from the cargo is ready at the exporter until the importer actually takes delivery. And from China to the U.S. before the pandemic, the average was around 45 days. Right now, that stands at 110 days. This is why we have a shortage of containers. But obviously, it also means as we gradually then work our way through the supply chain bottlenecks and reverse to normality, we won't need all those containers. So we are going to end up in a situation likely in 2023 where we will have an enormous surplus of empty containers around the world. This is, on one hand, going to lead to a situation that there are some people that will end up with far too many containers not knowing what to do with them. That's financially going to be a problem for some. But it's also going to be a very physical problem. Where are you going to store them? Where are these many surplus containers going to stand? And who is going to pay for storage? That is a, a really good question. And I know what data sets will all be looking at in the, the ocean market. Uh, from your recommendation, Laura's going into uh, throughout 2022. And we'd like to thank you again. It's always a pleasure talking to you uh, here at Global Supply Chain Week. And um, yeah, thanks again. Well, my pleasure. Perfect. And stay tuned, everybody, for more exciting content coming up here on day one at FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Week, Ocean Waves, where we're talking all about international and maritime trade.